This episode of the Craft Spirits Podcast is brought to you by Anton Parr. Proofing can be hard, so let Anton Parr, the world leader in beverage analysis, help. Anton Parr has solutions for any budget to help at every step of the production process. From raw materials to fermentation analysis, blending, bottling, and TTB-compliant alcohol measurement and proofing, Anton Parr has the perfect solution to make sure your products are at their best when they get to your customers. Check the show notes or head to AntonParr.com to find out how you can get in touch with an Anton Parr expert who has worked with distilleries ranging from startups to the biggest producers on the planet. A point that I took away from an ACSA convention a couple years ago was fail quickly and fail cheaply. And that's not, um, that's not been our process at, at my company. And, and I think sometimes that, you know, that would help us if we, if we took more of that mindset. I'm, I don't know that it's like necessarily fully our philosophy. Um, but I think there are instances where it, it makes a lot of sense and, and just, just try the thing in its basic form and, you know, get the idea out there. And if it sticks, then, then perfect it. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, we're going backwards. Our guest is Amber Pollock, co-founder of Wyoming-based Backwards Distilling Company. Amber is extremely active in the distilling world and her local community as well. She serves on ACSA's board of directors, and she is the vice president of the Wyoming Distillers Guild and the president of Engage, which is a grassroots organization of 18 to 35-year-olds aiming to strengthen the longevity of Wyoming. And plus, in November, she was elected to a seat on the Casper City Council. Amber spoke to our editor-in-chief, Jeff Cialetti, via Zoom in mid-December. Their conversation includes a look back at the early days of the pandemic, navigating uncertain waters for the hospitality industry, and some recent news from the distillery. But the discussion starts with that run for office, for which Amber says she filed to run at the very last minute. I was approached by a couple of folks in town who were um, concerned about the slate of candidates that would be available and wanted to see um, some somebody else on there, particularly I think somebody who was um, from the business community or younger. I mean, there were, I think of a number number of things that they weren't seeing on the slate that they wanted to see. Um, rational, I think, was one. <laughs> there, there we had we had some folks. Um, well, that's in short running. supply everywhere. <laughs> yeah, there there were a number of folks running. I think there, some people were a little bit concerned about that and. So I, I, I ended up filing just at the last minute, just so that I have the, the option to run if I wanted to, because I really didn't have time to think about it or <clears throat> discuss it. Um, I just had to do it. Um, and because this was the day of the filing deadline that people approached me. So um, I was, I, I filed just so that I would have the option um, and really kind of wanted to withdraw my name um, because I, I didn't really want to run, particularly for city council. Like I have been involved on, you know, on the advocacy side for the state legislature, and I've, I, I'm interested in that. Um, would love to do that someday, but it's 
you so had a disappearance. <laughs> um, I, I would love to to run for the state legislature potentially someday, but the trouble with that is the way ours is structured. You basically have to um, leave. You know, you have to pretty much move to Cheyenne for about two months out of the year, and it's oh, just wow. not really very friendly for um, anybody who has a typical job or you know business responsibilities at their house in order to be able to step away for that amount of time so um city council makes a little more sense because it's just weekly it's spread out and it's here in in casper so um so i didn't withdraw my name um mostly just because i was was worried another guy withdrew his name who i thought was relatively sane and so that was leaving us with fewer options and so I didn't withdraw, but I also didn't really campaign um, because like partially, like I was just wishing somebody else, you know, would, <laughs> you know, I was like, I just, I just don't want to have to do it. Cause you know, as you said, it's, it's not like I have free time, you know, I, I'm already involved in a lot of, a lot of things. And um, so I was, you know, hoping somebody else would, would do it, but they, they weren't. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll do it. And so I didn't really campaign and that's, you know, just a function. It's not a super competitive, I mean, Wyoming politics are still, you know, they're not, it's not like a big money race or anything like that. It's, it's relatively um, non-competitive. I mean, it's a little competitive. Obviously there were four people running for two seats, but nothing crazy like, you know, where you need a campaign manager and things like that. And I'm, relatively well known in this community just from the business and so that gives me you know the, the advantage of already having some name recognition and things like that so I didn't really campaign which um you know is very fortunate for me that I, I didn't really need to just was in that position due to the business and due to the nature of being in kind of a small town and um that that sort of thing so i um got a seat and i start in january wow so, yeah no i i remember it was um it was on election night it was around 3 a.m i saw your post on facebook and i knew that that john page was writing a story on um you know distillers who got into politics and i'm like so at like 3 a.m. I shoot him an email, I'm like, or I shoot him a text. And I'm like, oh, make sure you contact Amber. She's now going to be a councilwoman. And Yeah. Yeah. Cr crazy. I'm, I'm, we had an orientation this last week and I'm um, just working on getting scheduled up for, for starting in 2021. And it's a nine person councils and four people were elected, four new people were elected and then one person retained their seat. So we actually had a majority of seats up for election this this year, which is was another thing that kind of added some pressure to it. Um, so it should be it should be interesting. I got some committee assignments. I'm working with the uh, an organization called WAM, which stands for Wyoming Association of Municipalities. And that's kind of the the legislative like side of things working with the state legislature. So I wanted that one specifically because I know more about state politics than I know about like municipal um, politics. And so, um, you know, it's a good bridge for that. And then also just, you know, Wyoming is running into a lot of uh, 
um, budget issues, revenue issues, and that's going to start affecting municipalities pretty significantly. So wanted to, and that I do a lot of other work around that issue and outside of, you know, I work with ACSA, but at the state level, I work with um, some groups here who are working on revenue structure reform and things like that. And so kind of is in my wheelhouse, um, tying it down now to the municipal level. So. So what are your, what are your top priorities as far as that's concerned? As far as uh, city council is concerned or revenue? And, you know, and the budget as well. Yeah. So yeah, city council, I mean, the first, the first thing is, is dealing with the massive revenue shortfall that Wyoming is facing. I think, you know, the, the municipalities here don't have a lot of levers to raise their own revenues. It all basically flows through the, at the state level for the most part. And so kind of at the mercy of the state legislature to figure out how they're going to improve the revenue picture and that trickles to the municipalities. And so really kind of pushing um, the state to either address the revenue shortfall or give municipalities more um, you know, authority to um, come up with their own revenue solutions if they're not going to address it at the state level. So that'll be the first thing is advocating for that one way or the other. I mean, obviously, I'd like to see the state address it in a little more holistic way. But if they're not going to, you know, I, I don't think it's fair that municipalities are handcuffed either um, to relying on them if they're not going to take action. So um, advocating for one or even a combination of those solutions will be probably the bulk of the work, to be honest with you. Um, and then uh, I, I think that there's, um, there's a real need for, um, for some, some folks to help drive a narrative here. There's, there's a lot of, I, I feel like a lot of times Wyoming makes the news for like terrible things. Like it's, we never get in the news for like something that it was like, it was like good or like seems sane or whatever, you know, and like vast majority of people here are sane, but like we end up um, with this, with these, these news cycles that are like highlighting some crazy things that happen because there are people here that are also doing crazy things. And so, mm -hmm. um, and I think we just don't do a good enough job of, of messaging, even, you know, messaging from our leadership to to even messaging to our own citizens like forget what goes out into the rest of the world you know even just what what stories we're telling ourselves about ourselves um i think um they're really not they're not productive in a lot of ways and so i think that um i think that helping to set an example of um at a leadership level of you know the, what we say is important, like how we say it is important. We need to be thoughtful, like how we're approaching some of these things so that we don't come, come off, you know, as, as completely unreasonable or irrational people. And that like sort of feeds into the citizenry, I think. And, and we've got, you know, things are just crazy everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. You look in the comment sections and it's just like, Oh, like it's, even bother. it's just crazy, you know, and it's, it's, um, and I, I think that you know, Wyoming has a potential because we are such a small population. Um, you know, a few people can really steer that ship in a different direction here. Um, it's just a matter of like, who's, who's being successful at doing that. So I think taking more ownership over, 
our own narrative um, is uh, <clears throat> important for me. And also pushing that out, you know, like it's important that when people look like, hey, should I consider moving to Casper or starting a business in Casper, or, you know, looking at schools in Casper, it's important that they find things that are good about Casper and not just a list of like weird one-off stories that happen to make the news, you know? So we, we just, we're not pushing out enough of the positive um, message about ourselves, I don't think. So those one-off stories tend to just be the only thing that comes up then. And so, um, you know, working on that. And then really my last thing is just uh, taking care of the community fabric. I think that um, we have not given enough attention to the fact that communities don't just like stay strong naturally like they do need they need intention um intentional development intentional um work um behind it and so i think that really leaders at all levels need to be giving some thought to that and figuring out how they're going to create a healthier healthier community in all senses of that word so um it's mostly what I, what I plan to work on. I didn't come in with specific policies. It's more like philosophical like approaches to things because you know, a lot of what city council does is, is kind of just like mundane everyday stuff. Like, uh, should we change this speed limit or should we like deal with this sewer problem or, you know, like what, I mean, stuff like that. There's every now and then something that's, you know, more controversial or more you know like there are issues that are kind of more more broad and overreaching but a lot of it's just like nuts and bolts everyday stuff but you know they're still sending out a message even when they're talking about that stuff about how they how they talk about it how they approach it so that's that's what i'm looking for going in is just how what what the approach is what the thought process is and demonstrating sound decision making you know at the at a leadership level after a break we shift gears to the pandemic's effect on the hospitality industry. This episode of the Craft Spirits Podcast is brought to you by Anton Parr. Proofing can be hard, so let Anton Parr, the world leader in beverage analysis, help. Anton Parr has solutions for any budget to help at every step of the production process. From raw materials to fermentation analysis, blending, bottling, and TTB-compliant alcohol measurement and proofing, Anton Parr has the perfect solution to make sure your products are at their best when they get to your customers. Check the show notes or head to AntonParr.com to find out how you can get in touch with an Anton Parr expert who has worked with distilleries ranging from startups to the biggest producers on the planet. This podcast is a production of the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine. ACSA is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the U.S. craft spirits industry. Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire craft spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, visit craftspiritsmag.com. Back in April, Amber joined Jeff for the first installment of Craft Spirits Live our weekly Instagram live show. In this, their most recent conversation, 
Jeff asked if Amber could have imagined back then that we'd essentially be in the same spot that we are now with the pandemic. So I, th I think back at that point, I, I wasn't really spending a lot of time looking ahead because it was really, it was confusing and it was just, I, I just had so little idea of what to expect that I was just kind of more of like going day to day. So I had no idea like what December of this year would look like. I didn't even want to pretend to guess. So, um, I mean, I did, I did have a feeling then that it was not going to be, you know, a short, a short term situation. I figured it would be at least through the end of this year, but I didn't know, I didn't know what that would mean. I guess I did imagine that there would be like, there would be some systems that were put into place at some, you know, at some point to where it was a bit more predictable and manageable and that hasn't really proved to be the case. I mean, things here are the worst they've been um, yet. And so uh, I didn't expect that. I didn't mm -hmm. expect that it would get, that it would actually be worse now than it was then. I, I kind of felt like, you know, we would, we'd probably still be doing it, but we would have, we would have, you know, better processes. We'd know more what to expect. It would be a little bit less like unknown, which I suppose in a way is a little less unknown when we've got a vaccine and, yeah. and things like that. So like there's some, you know, picture of what the next six months or eight months or whatever are going to look like. But um, yeah. It'll it's be a, a different six months at least, you know. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so like as far as in this whole time, um, let's talk about some of the things that you've done to kind of stay connected with your uh, your consumers as well as with the the bar community because that's the part that's really been you know it's just it just really depresses me just to see like what's going on there especially since there's like doesn't seem to be any relief in sight for any of the on-premise segment it's just um it's disheartening seeing so many places close so like what um what on your end um you know, have you been trying to do to kind of keep everybody together? Yeah, so we've, um, on, on the consumer side first, we have, we came out of the gates with um, quite just really focusing on online content because we weren't doing really anything in person at first, um, other than like bottle pickups. And then when we found out we can do cocktails to go, we kind of shifted more to like providing that rather than just trying to provide content because you know content is great and it was great for us but it also doesn't necessarily directly bring in revenue so um so we switched to to bottles and um and kits to go and eventually opened temporarily for in-person um seated service we've closed that now but we are considering um reopening to a limited capacity we're really just trying to base it on like what our county numbers are looking like and how our hospital is doing and our hospital is not doing very well when we decided to close it down they were about 85 percent capacity i think like that something like that now they're like 40 percent capacity so it's improved quite a bit over the last several weeks and so um so we may kind of reopen we've just been trying to be really communicative with our customers letting them know about like what's happening this week what's going on so you know i think people are in the routine now of checking checking in with us to see what what we're doing what 
the approaches and hopefully, you know, have mm, something that they can, you know, participate with us in one way or another. And um, we've also uh, still trying to generate content. We've, we switched to uh, more of a like gifting to go like merch emphasis for December. Usually December, we just have tons of people who have family in town or are coming in for cocktails and things like that. And now this, this year, we not really, you know, trying to advocate for that. So we're um, just focusing on gift sets and things like that. And, and I think that's been interesting. I mean, I think people think of us for gifts quite a bit, but maybe to a lesser extent, just we've had that added focus there. And so people have been like, oh my gosh, this is a perfect gift. I had no idea you guys did this stuff. I'm like, yeah, like we can do it anytime basically. But, um, you know, just giving a little bit of, of shedding some light on some other elements that maybe we haven't spent so much focus on has been, has been good. And then we've really just tried to, I mean, our approach has been trying to make sure that we are being leaders in our community in terms of how we how we behave and how we approach this so we've we've tried to be transparent and communicative with the community we've tried to make proactive decisions rather than reactive decisions and i think our our customers have appreciated that um, and have noticed that so you know in that way we're trying to support our community and thereby support our our customers um, and in terms of the the you know on-premise folks and staff we just got our first um, aside from the initial shutdown we just got a first like curfew basically um, mm -hmm. last last week maybe um, so it starts at 10 and so for a lot of folks um, a lot of a lot of on-premise spots are being hit really hard by that and staff and um, working with a person here in town to try to help some of the staff because the way, you know, there's some funding available and our governor has, has worked really hard to tie funding availability to government restrictions. So like if he's put in a restriction for this, like here's his answer to help businesses lessen the impact of whatever that restriction is. And they've always been, so they've always been kind of paired with one another. And so in this case, this it's a relief fund specifically for bars for the hours of 10 p.m. to whenever they normally close, but it doesn't help staff that much. It covers wages, and then I guess it's in the CARES Act. I don't. I'm trying to understand it, but they are covering wages times 0.35 for the tips. So they're they're factoring they're figuring tips based on the wage instead of based on the revenue and so we all know that like that's not really how tips are derived and because we live in a world where the wage structure for hospitality is completely a mess you've got people making sub minimum wage um hourly wage and they're going to get 35 percent of that for tips so it's like i mean they could still be making less than five bucks an hour you know and so it doesn't really help the staff um i think they they wanted to help the staff, but and from what I understand from the state, that that is how the CARES Act is written. And I really don't know. I haven't taken the time to look in depth into that. But obviously, that's not going to be a big help to all the staff that's missing out on the income from the hours of 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And so a local guy, it's a, a reporter actually who did a story on it, 
And after talking to everybody, kind of felt compelled to try to figure out a way to help. And so he and I are just in the brainstorming process of coming up with a way to support um, industry workers, um, trying to pull a few other people into because I really like not trying to run like a fund or something like that. You know, it's like way too it's a lot. <laughs> so I don't want to try to get in. I have no experience doing that. So I really don't want to try to get into it, but trying to put the people in place to make that happen and make it happen quickly because we've got, you know, people started losing out on that income as of last Wednesday. And for a lot of people, that's significant. I mean, that's hundreds of dollars, you know, it adds up really fast. And so um, looking, looking to try to find a way to directly help some of the hospitality workers in Casper just financially um and hopefully we we've, we've shown some really our community's really done a lot for um healthcare workers just at a grassroots level um of putting a fund together to um to do meals and uh, snack boxes and they did a whole a whole number of things we're doing free drinks for healthcare workers that's funded by that fund as well um, lots of folks in town have something going and that's been super successful. It was like an amazing grassroots effort that got put together just on Facebook. It went for about a month and they felt like it had kind of run its course. They distributed out the rest of the dona donations to people who were still doing stuff in town and then like, you know, disbanded it. And I kind of think that that's like a really good grassroots model to follow. So I'm hoping we can come up with something like that for temporary, temporarily for our hospitality folks as well because there's not, there's not a government solution for it right now. Yeah, I mean, would you say that um, the whole concept of a curfew, um, would you say it ends up being more punitive than it is like a public health benefit? Oh, it's so, it's so hard to say. I mean, I, I just don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know like what the impacts are. I wish that there was like, you know, what, what, makes sense to me is that there would be some sort of broad strategy that has like some amount of data to mm -hmm. back up like why these actions are important and what they do and how we're going to mitigate the impacts of them and like that just that's just not a there's no such strategy that that i can see um at least not working you know not not working at the national level for sure maybe some states or communities have kind of come up with a better strategy but you know for for here, it's, and I'm not like trying to say that people are doing a bad job or making bad decisions. I just think that the big picture strategy is not, is not there. And it may just be the lack of, you know, we still don't know everything we need to know about this. And, and so just, you know, maybe that's the recommendations that's coming. I, I, I don't know from, you know, from the health departments and I certainly support um, following whatever recommendations they're coming out with. So I, I don't know if it's punitive or if it is effective, I, but I do know that it's, I can see why people think it's punitive because they're like, well, what, you can't get coronavirus after 10 p.m. And it's like, well, I mean, I think what they're trying to do in closing the bars at 10 p.m. is essentially create a curfew without having to say they're creating a curfew because it's the only thing that you would really go out and do at that time anyway. And so for some reason they feel like it's, easier to accomplish it that way and less you know people will be less like upset um, by it but I do know that for the people who work in those places um, it's it I mean they're not really leaving them with with any with any help so it's like well it's, you know we're gonna essentially like 
cut your income dramatically and there's basically no answer for what you're supposed to do with that situation. And so, um, I, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's punitive. I, I hope that it's helping because it's certainly making a negative impact, um, you know, on a number of businesses and individuals across the country. And so I hope that it's helping with the cases, but I, I do think it's just not, it, it, it's not appropriate to not have something, especially for, you know, for workers who are, that just cuts out so much of their income and it's mm. like, you can't, like, what are they supposed to do? I mean, the, the, the freeze goes away, uh, the eviction freeze goes away in January. I mean, you, you, there's just nothing like, I don't, I don't, there's no answer for them. And that's just not really appropriate to just be like, well, it's helping with the virus cases, but we're just going to leave y'all, you know, to figure this out. And, and it's, you know, I, I just feel like those things need to be coupled with a real like solution to help the individuals that it impacts. Or at least just some level of certainty, because I think part of it is that there never really seems to be any sort of timeline for these rules or the shutdowns or whatever. It's like, I've seen more probably in Europe, they seem to be a little better about it. Like, you know, for instance, I know some bars in Amsterdam, they were like, okay, we have to shut down again for four weeks. It's like, at least they told you it's four weeks. Yeah, And um, you can sort of figure out how to make things work during that period. Like for instance, they'll sell a lot of gift certificates, that sort of thing for, you know, when we do reopen, come use this and that sort of, but like if they're, you're just getting open-ended like, oh, okay, you're shutting down a tenant. Like my, my instinct, and again, I'm not a scientist. I have no medical training and I'm not much of a, like a data geek either, but just almost from like basic logic to me, it seems like, okay, you tell people they have to close at 10. Does that mean you're going to have more people congregating right before 10 o'clock or trying to squeeze in. I mean, again, you've got like capacity rules and that sort of thing. Sure. But like people are going to be lined up outside or whatever. And I think it almost creates the potential for more infection because um, it's like cramming for an exam, you know, everyone's going to be doing it like at that point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think there, that's been the, the argument on, uh, you know, on the part of several um bar owners here is like, well, we don't want more people in before 10. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I mean, I get that people are less, less likely to be following protocols and restrictions. The later it gets into the night, the longer they've been at the bar. I, I don't know the answer, but I do think that it's a tough, it's a tough sell, particularly when it's not coupled with something that's like, okay, we're going to do this, but like, we're going to like, I don't think it's like a radical, that radical of an idea to say like, we're going to pay you to be closed for right. this time so that you can pay your staff and like, whatever. I mean, the amount of money that's going out the door to try to like, I mean, it's, it's not been targeted well. And that, that's the thing that frustrates me about it is like, you know, when they, they, they put out this relief funding and it's like, but it's just, it's just sort of a free for all. And it's like, well, not everybody is equally impacted by this. And so like, we need to understand like where the impacts are being felt and get to those people. And some people like their job hasn't changed at all, you know? And so it's like, well, they don't probably need the same type of, of relief that somebody who literally doesn't have a job or has had their income slashed. Um, those people are going to need more. And I, so like the one size fits all approach is just not, 
is not acceptable. And that's why I'm, I'm just still so frustrated that we haven't seen anything coming out specifically for the hospitality industry um, at the federal mm-hmm. level, tourism, hospitality, event venues. I mean, those are the places where, you know, even like big manu- some big manufacturing where you've got lots and lots and lots of workers in one space, like that's where it's getting hit really hard. And so, you know, you look at where all of the money's gone, it's like, we could have afforded to just pay those people to be closed. Yeah, with that amount of money and so you got like these major corporations too that are that are just using it to buy back stocks and things like that i mean again that's been anecdotal but um it is happening and then you know i just read today um like joel osteen's mega church in houston he got four million dollars and and it's like and and he's not paying any taxes it's just like (laughs) right yeah no i mean that and that's that's why I think there's so much frustration about it. And like, you know, for me, like I'm really trying to support decision makers right now. I'm trying to support, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very supportive of health departments and, and all our medical experts that are giving us this advice. But I understand where a lot of the frustration is coming from because, it, because of stuff like that, where it seems like, what? Like, you know, my small business is struggling. We're like, you know, I, I, multiple, we're starting to get to that point in Wyoming where people are having to make decisions like they're closing we're good they're closing temporarily it's like you've got this happening it's like and then you've got stuff like that happening and so like mm-hmm. these people are like i'm i'm so frustrated because like i'm not getting the help i need and you see help going other places where you're like what did they really need that for like they they weren't at risk of you know closing or weren't at risk of getting evicted like they were you know maybe losing some profitability but like they had the means to to overcome that without that help whereas like other may not have those types of you know, options. And so they just left with, without. After a final break, on to more optimistic topics of conversation, like new products and market expansion for backwards. This episode of the Craft Spirits podcast is brought to you by Anton Parr. Proofing can be hard, so let Anton Parr, the world leader in beverage analysis, help. Anton Parr has solutions for any budget to help at every step of the production process. From raw materials to fermentation analysis, blending, bottling, and TTB-compliant alcohol measurement and proofing, Anton Parr has the perfect solution to make sure your products are at their best when they get to your customers. Check the show notes or head to AntonParr.com to find out how you can get in touch with an Anton Parr expert who has worked with distilleries ranging from startups to the biggest producers on the planet. This podcast is a production of the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine. ACSA is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the U.S. craft spirits industry. Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire Craft Spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small, independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, visit craftspiritsmag.com. Despite all of the lowlights of 2020, there were a few highlights for Backwards. 
Amber is proud to say that Backwards products are now available in Nevada. And as you know, it's incredibly difficult for small brands to find distributors and um, to secure distribution. And so um, it, it, uh, that was a totally unexpected, um, I don't want to say it's a result, but it wasn't totally not a result of this pandemic either because this distribution company, you know, they, I think they took the approach of really trying to, trying to make moves when other people were not making moves. So a lot of the big distribution companies were laying people off. They, you know, their sales team off, they weren't really, um, pushing for account visits and things like that. And this company decided to, to take the opposite approach and like, obviously like doing it safely and making sure that they're, that they're minimizing risk where they can, but trying to fill in that gap, like people were still trying to buy liquor and a lot of accounts were really frustrated that they couldn't get, you know, they didn't have the reps and things like that. And so he took the opportunity to hire some great, some great talent, um, people who had lost their jobs, um, who wouldn't have lost their jobs because of the pandemic. And so I, I, I feel um, like it's, it's sort of a weird side effect, uh, getting this distribution in, in Las Vegas and, um, and, and Nevada. So that has been really, um, it's, it's really exciting. I mean, we, we've been wanting that market for a while. So we, we've got some existing collaborations with, um, some folks in the art di arts district there. And so we have just some ties. It's also really easy for us to get there. Um, you know, like trying to get into the market and, and work the market yourself, um, you know, flights out of Wyoming are expensive. And so mm -hmm. if we're not near really near any major airports, so, um, everything on the West in the West is just, it's significantly cheaper than for us to try to get anywhere East. So, um, so, you know, that's actually Vegas. We can drive. We did drive um, the first time down there because we did a, a small kind of like launch and we needed a bunch of stuff, decorations and stuff. So we just drove it down. There's 12 hours for us to get there. So yeah, uh, yeah not too bad. You can do it. We did it in one, one shot one day. And um, yeah, so it makes it accessible for us. Um, and, you know, so th that's what we're really excited about in terms of product. Um, We've got just kind of a few things in the works. Um, our our bourbon will be coming out soon. Um, right now in the age realm, we have American whiskey, which has been out for mm, two years now, and um, our Franken bourbon, which just had its second release as well this October. Um, but just our regular bourbon is going to be um, coming out 2021. So excited about that. Um, Lots of people have been waiting for that. Um, so that's that's one big thing that we're looking forward to. And then, you know, just hoping we, we spent a long time catching up from hand sanitizer production and now we've got all the booze on hand. So we're hoping to be able to take January and February and just do a little bit more product development and R and D and work on some some you know new some new stuff. So um, as as we can. I mean still like R&D can be very expensive. And so we're trying to look, you know, at, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to spend money right now when you're like, am I going to need this money? Like how long am I going to like be feeling these impacts? And like, am I going to need this money just to do basic stuff or do, can I allocate some to um, some, you know, further like longer term projects and things like that. It's a hard, 
it's a hard call to make. So we're trying to balance it, you know, not be, not be too cautious and not be too optimistic either, you know? Um, and as far as 2021 goes, um, what are you looking forward to the most? Um, <laughs> the vaccine, <laughs> I think, um, I, I'm looking forward to being able to open tasting room again. Um, you know, normally start to rebuild that and see and be able to get around to, um, you know, I love eating out and drinking out and I haven't eaten in a restaurant since it started. I've only had, you know, takeout and patios when it was patio season and we've got couple inches of snow on the ground now so it's it's no longer really patio season but you know I'm looking forward to being able to go back into bars and restaurants and you know support them support my product in those places you try to try to really find ways to partner with people to collectively like jumpstart ourselves you know back into back into business and you know so trying to start brainstorming some of those things that you know ways that we can help um can help our accounts and our accounts can help us and just you know really kind of find a way to kick off strong when the time when the time comes so um yeah it's, i'd say that I'm, I'm looking forward to having a rest a, a, a sit down meal <laughs> at, a, at a restaurant with a cocktail that i didn't make myself you know i mean that's that's something that everybody's missing i think since this conversation took place before the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act passed, giving craft distillers permanent federal excise tax relief, Jeff and Amber didn't linger too long on the topic. But Jeff did strike a hopeful tone. Assuming it did pass, he asked, what did Amber see as the next big federal priority for distillers? I, I hope that there's some, some good stuff that could be done more at like the policy and rulemaking level and less at the, like, legislative level um i think continuing to work with the ttb um is another sort of federal level thing that um the industry needs to do finding finding ways to continue to make that process easier and better um i think that that the way things are now um, even though you know there's there's been a lot of improvements made and you know, some things are, are going great. Like, you know, COLA formula approvals, even DSP approvals, all those things are happening a lot faster now and things like that. Um, I think there's still like a lot to do to, to look at how that, how that process is structured and how it impacts who's able to get into the industry and who's not able to get into the industry. It's, it's like the first gate, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think giving some scrutiny to what that gate looks like and and how we are how how it what the results of that gate are in terms of how the industry looks um i think um is something that should be given some some attention so i think we when we talk about um diversity issues in our industry i i think that's probably one of the first places we need to look is like what where are the gates like who are the gatekeepers <laughs> what what is you know what what is happening and i think you know we as an organization, ACSA has developed a really good working relationship with the TTB. I think that's so important. And in fact, most industry members have a really good working relationship with the TTB. And so I, th I think 
what that gives us the opportunity to do then is to make sure that we've given some scrutiny to how how things are working at that level and what can be done to perhaps remove some barriers of entry that do not need to be there for mm. for the industry and so um, to make it more accessible, to to increase the likelihood that somebody could get into this industry successfully. And so that's just one that's kind of been rolling around in my, in my head um, in terms of at the national level, something that could happen to benefit the, the industry once FET is accomplished. And I think that's one of them. And I mean, so, so much of what work remains to do is going to be at the state level, but there are still, you know, some, some federal issues as well. And I think that would be the, the next place to start digging in. And um, I, I guess sort of related to that, you know, if you're talking about sort of those regulatory agencies and stuff, would you say it, it potentially should be easier to work with them because you're not dealing with as much political posturing or whichever way you know, you know, some senator or representative trying to make a name for themselves with, you know, whatever way the political breeze is blowing, that sort of thing. For the most part, I would think the TTB and other agencies are a little less susceptible to that sort of thing, you know, given that there is some sort of continuity of leadership and all that other stuff, and they aren't supposed to be political agencies. Um, has that been true in practice? I mean, that's really just my theory. <laughs> Yeah, it's not, I mean, that's not an area that I have participated too much in firsthand um, with ACSA, but that's my sense too. Um, I, my sense is that um, the TTB is a very like industry mind, like they have an industry mind that they want to help the industry insofar as they can and still do what they're charged to do, which is, I mean, their job is not to create new distilleries, but I think they also want to seek that, you know, a, a situation where they're not hindering that either. Um, you know, their, their job is to collect taxes and provide oversight on those, on those, you know, uh, two distilleries on a number of levels. And, and I, I, but I do think that they are sensitive to the fact that their policies can have direct implications on people's business success in this industry. And, and I, I think you're right. I think so much of craft beverage modernization, like it, the reason it hasn't passed is not because it's unpopular, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's, it's a whole host of unrelated things that are ultimately getting in the way of, of something that is otherwise a very popular measure. And, and it's, it's all this extra, all the baggage that comes attached to it. And I think at the agency level, at least in what I've heard from working with the TTB, it's not attached to that. It's much more pragmatic. It's like, okay, what are we looking at? What are the impacts? What can we do? And how do we make a system that, you know, is good for the industry and also allows us to efficiently do what we're charged with doing. And, and all of the, all of the other stuff sort of doesn't factor in as much. And so I, I hope that um, it'll be an easier an easier road and that a lot of the foundation is already laid for these conversations to to continue and you know so i hope that it's there are things that can be done that that aren't you know just at the policy level if it's that if that's the case man you don't have to go through all the all the 
congressional like rigmarole you know you mm -hmm. just can can get it done and and put it into effect all right last question i have anything that 2020 has taught you that you will be able to apply in future years yeah a, a lot um <laughs> let me think of you know, something specifically man i feel I definitely have changed um, through this year in terms of like mindset and it's been a, an interesting year for, for growth for sure. But I mean, I guess one thing, one thing that I think I will apply is a new perspective on, on what it means to be nimble and flexible. Um, I think that this year gave me the opportunity to really sort of like where, whereas before I might've seen, you know, a, a problem like this big and like, there's all this, you know, stuff floating around. It's given me the ability to be like, this stuff can go actually. And you just need to do, you just need to think about this in order to, to, to create a change. So all of these things might get in the way where, you know, for us, a lot of times it was, you know, we've, before we can, you know, do this thing or launch this product or try this thing in the tasting room, like it's gotta be, it's gotta be perfected. It's got it. Like everything's gotta be right. And, and through this process, we've had to, to implement things immediately and then improve them over time um, rather than try to get all that done on the front end. And I think there's something to be said for that too. in in business where it's like, try things and if they don't work you can phase them out and if they need improvement you can improve them and it doesn't have to be fully thought out from the get-go because like you might do all that work and then you still might launch the thing and then it still might need tweaked or adjusted based on feedback that you're getting or ways that you're seeing it work in practice and so I guess um you know for me it was like let's get some concepts out there and see what sticks and see what's going to, um, you know, work for us in, in the longer term and, um, just kind of get out of our own way or we've got these ideas and it's like, Oh, but there's these layers and layers and layers of things that have to happen before we can make that happen. And so, um, a point that I took away from an ACSA convention a couple of years ago was fail quickly and fail cheaply. And that's not, um, that's not been our process at, at my company. And, and, I think sometimes that, you know, that would help us if we, if we took more of that mindset. I'm, I don't know that it's like necessarily fully our philosophy, um, but I think there are instances where it, it makes a lot of sense and, and just, just try the thing in its basic form and, you know, get the idea out there. And if it sticks, then, then perfect it. And so, you know, an example that are cocktail kits, like, wanted to do cocktail kits for years before this was even a thing. Like before we had a pandemic, I wanted to do that as an offering for our guests, but it's like, Oh, but I've got to find the perfect packaging and I've got to find this. And you know, there's all these costs and got to have, everything has to be, has to be right. And has to be um, particularly in terms of the packaging and the, the design and you know, that stuff gets really expensive when you got to get custom boxes and all these things. And it's like, okay, well, how can we, how can we just do it right now? So I got with my food supplier and ordered like the paper folding boxes and put the stuff in there. Even like the syrups, you know, like a, we didn't have cute little bottles. We had just like portion cups and it's like, but 
the cocktail kit was there. People could take it home and I could see if they actually bought them, if they liked them, if they used them. And, and they did. And so it's like, okay, so now what, what, what do we need to do to get closer to how we want these to be? So we've since traded those little to go boxes for a different, like a Gable style box. And it's got a little bit more, you know, we have more emphasis on sending you with garnishes and things like that to make it, to make it nicer, to make it be like how we really imagine it to be. But it started with just like, what can we do this week to make this idea ha try to happen? You know, not like we don't have a year to like stretch this out and plan it out and find suppliers and do all this. Like I just need stuff in house now so I can get some product out the door. Cause I have to get some money coming in. And so it just changed my, it changed my approach to some of those things. And just like, you know, like don't think it to death, just like maybe just try, maybe some things are just worth, trying out and it's a version of them to test the waters and see how it goes. And I think, I think that that's a good, just business, small business concept to have. And it's something that I think I needed to practice and I got lots of chances to practice it this year. I maybe knew it philosophically that it would be a useful model, but I, I never had really put it to use. And so now it's like, okay, I feel like it's become part of my, mindset now um, because it's been a year of doing that. That's our program for today. Thanks to Amber for joining us. You can learn more about Backwards at backwardsdistilling.com. And thanks again to Anton Parr for sponsoring this episode. You can learn more about them at antonparr.com. That's A-N-T-O-N-P-A-A-R.com. If you haven't already, you can check out the latest issue of Craft Spirits Magazine online, which features the medalists, including a few products from Backwards, from our inaugural Craft Spirits Packaging Awards. You can find it and subscribe for free at craftspiritsmag.com. We'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers! Cheers!